Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, you are the God of truth. Send forth your light and your truth and lead us into your presence that we might receive truth from your mouth, that we might be taught by God and fed with the manna from heaven, even Jesus Christ, that we might not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from his mouth. We ask, Lord, that we would know the truth and that the truth would set us free, that you would enable us to discern and distinguish truth from error, Christ from antichrist, that you would help us to be sanctified in the truth and not turned aside by the devil who is the father of lies and a murderer of souls and bodies from the beginning. Bless our time now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We begin our third lecture on the federal vision. The first two addressed an overview of significant events, key events in the background and progress of the federal vision controversy. I do want to just say before we begin this lesson that I had accidentally failed to mention in the last lecture that there was a federal vision joint statement in, I think it was 2007. I mentioned that in the first lecture, but we never really talked about it in the second lecture. But we will address that later on in our series. So that is a significant element in the federal vision. There was a joint statement that addressed a number of these topics. I think it was in 2007. But our lesson topic today is Norman Shepard's Doctrine of Justification. We talked about the Norman Shepard controversy in the 1970s and 80s, and later on in the early 2000s with some books that he published that addressed the doctrine of justification. We're not going to rehash that background, but we are going to consider in detail, based upon his own writings, what he said about that. And if you recall, there are a number of people today who are held in high regard, who have some attachment, some association, even in, in some cases have uh, paid tribute to Norman Shepard and defended him. And so you'll want to be taking their names down as well as you encounter them as we look at what they're actually involving themselves with. So Norman Shepard's Doctrine of Justification Norman Shepard being the former systematics professor at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. He was fired from that position after a number of years of controversy regarding his doctrine of justification. He was fired in the early 80s. Before we get to his doctrine of justification, let's remind ourselves, as you can see in your handout, which we will be posting on Sermon Audio and on Facebook in due time, but in your handout, you'll notice that we begin by refreshing our memory concerning the biblical and confessional doctrine of justification. Larger Catechism 70, what is justification? Justification is an act of God's free grace unto sinners in which he pardoneth all their sins, accepteth and accounteth their persons righteous in his sight, not for anything wrought in them or done by them, but only for the perfect obedience and full satisfaction of Christ 
by God imputed to them and received by faith alone. That is the Reformed doctrine of justification. As we'll see in a moment, that's the biblical doctrine of justification. And in that answer that we just looked at, you can see that it is God who justifies. He justifies guilty sinners. He pardons all their sins and considers them or regards them or accounts them righteous in His sight. And that's justification. It's a legal declaration of righteousness. He removes their sin. He clothes them in the perfect righteousness of Christ. And this declaration is not on account of anything wrought in them. It's not, well, the Spirit did a work in their life and now they're righteous and God is declaring that they've been changed and transformed by the Holy Spirit in them. No, that's not the doctrine. And it's not by anything done by them. As Titus 3 says, not by works of righteousness that we have done, but He saved us. So it's not by any works. It's not God saying, hey, your works are good, justified. Puts the stamp of approval on something wrought in you or done by you. And so you can't say, well, we're justified by works, but they're works that Jesus, by His Spirit, helps us and enables us to do. So God gets all the glory. And you become a a sort of... uh, Roman Catholic predestinarian. That's not the doctrine. That's not the biblical or confessional doctrine. It's only for the perfect obedience and full satisfaction of Christ. Notice the two elements. His perfect obedience. We'll see in a future lecture, this is the whole scope of His lifelong obedience unto death on the cross. Not my will, but your will. The greatest act of his obedience was going to the cross and suffering for our sins in obedience to the Father. But it's his whole life of perfect obedience and his full satisfaction. In other words, he doesn't just obey the precepts of the law, but he satisfies the demands of justice and punishment from the law. So the the obedience and the satisfaction of Christ, which he accomplished at the cross. It is finished. And it is this righteousness that Christ has purchased in that way is by God imputed to these sinners. It's accounted unto them. They're regarded as righteous in the sight of the law. It's by God imputed to them and received by faith alone. An empty hand of faith receiving the fullness of Christ's righteousness. That's justification. Question 71. How is justification an act of God's free grace? You see, they know there, there's, there are rats in the woodpile, right? There are heretics out there that are going to say, well, we believe in justification by grace. And then they fill in the gaps with all kinds of other doctrines of God's grace. So the Westminster Assembly, they knew all about these kind of people. And they, they gave us a catechism to study, to refute them. Larger Catechism 71. How is justification an act of God's free grace? Although Christ, by His obedience and death, notice the twofold element of how He purchased our righteousness and what that righteousness consists of. It's His obedience and His death. Previously in the question, His satisfaction. Although Christ, by His obedience and death, did make a proper, real, and full satisfaction to God's justice in the behalf of them that are justified, yet inasmuch as God accepteth the satisfaction from a surety, that's a substitute. 
somebody who agrees to do it for you. The fact that God accepted what His law demanded from somebody other than you, dear believer, is gracious. He didn't have to do that. Which He might have demanded of them. So He might have just said, well, uh, I'm going to demand this of you. You have to pay it. So He graciously allowed and provided a, a mediator. It says here, and He did provide this surety. So not only did He allow a surety, a substitute, to take care of this, but He provided the substitute. And did provide this surety, His own only Son, imputing His righteousness to them. So imputation is not God saying something about you and yourself. It's saying something about what Christ did on your behalf as a substitute. And requiring nothing of them for their justification but faith. Well, that's going to prompt the next question, but for now... Nothing is required but faith, which is also His gift. And it's in that way that their justification is to them of free grace. So God says, all you need to do is bring the empty hands of faith and receive Christ's righteousness. Nothing in my hands I bring, only to the cross I cling. And so you come and receive Christ's righteousness freely. As, and even the faith itself is a gift. Even the faith is a gift of the Holy Spirit. But question 72, again, they know someone's going to weasel their way in here and redefine faith as obedience. So, larger catechism 72, which, by the way, that's the Roman Catholic doctrine of justification by faith. They say faith is, it is a gift. Yeah, it's, it's a gracious thing. It's, it's the Holy Spirit working in somebody's life. They wouldn't have the same doctrine that we would have about faith as a gift. But they would recognize this is a grace of the Holy Spirit, Faith is a grace of the Holy Spirit, so is hope and love and obedience and all the fruits of the Spirit. And so you're justified by your possession of these virtues. So yeah, justified by faith as a virtue, not as an empty hand receiving Christ's virtue, but as a virtue in and of itself. So they, they smelled this coming. What is justifying faith? Justifying faith is a saving grace wrought in the heart of a sinner by the Spirit and Word of God. Now remember, our righteousness is not anything wrought in us. Question 70. So saving faith, justifying faith, is a saving grace wrought in the heart of a sinner by the Spirit and Word of God. But by definition, it can't be the basis of our justification. It's just the way we receive it. It's just the instrument whereby he being convinced of his sin and misery and of the disability in himself and all other creatures to recover him out of his lost condition, not only assenteth to the truth of the promise of the gospel, but receiveth and resteth upon Christ and his righteousness. So faith is an instrument to receive Christ's righteousness, to assent to the truth of the gospel, to agree with it, and to rest upon Christ. In other words, Christ did the work and we rest in His finished work. It is finished. We strive, Hebrews 4, to enter into His rest. That is the aspect of faith that functions in justification. There are other aspects of faith that function in other ways. Faith works by love, so on and so forth. 
But the only aspects of faith that function in justification are these instrumental means by which we receive and rest upon Christ. And continuing the catechism, upon Christ and His righteousness therein set forth for pardon of sin and for the accepting and accounting of His person righteous in the sight of God for salvation. Then question 73, how doth faith justify a sinner in the sight of God? So what does it mean that faith is that instrument? How does faith justify a sinner in the sight of God? Again, they're ready for these, uh, these dangerous doctrines to come in. They say this, faith justifies a sinner in the sight of God, not because of those other graces which do always accompany it. So someone's going to come in and say, yeah, but faith is always accompanied by repentance. True. In fact, uh, what is it? Chapter 15, section 3 of the Confession says that repentance is of such a necessity to all sinners that none may expect pardon without it. Because if you don't have repentance, it's not true faith. So if you're unrepentant, you shouldn't be expecting forgiveness. So someone's going to come in and say, you see, faith is always joined to these other graces because faith is the result of regeneration and therefore it has all of these regenerate graces. So since faith is always accompanied by these other things, therefore these other things factor into faith's role in justification. Okay? So it's no new insight when people come in with these kinds of innovative doctrines. They're not really innovative. Satan's not that creative throughout church history. And, and so they're, they're recognizing it's not on account of those other graces that do always accompany it or of good works that are the fruits of it. Somebody says faith works by love. It's a working faith. Okay, great, but that has nothing to do with, with justification. That's faith functioning in sanctification, not in justification nor as if the grace of faith or any act thereof were imputed to him for his justification. So people are going to say, wait, it's your faith that God is imputing to you. He's looking at your faith or Abraham's faith, and he's, he's imputing your faith as your righteousness. Nope, they say. But it's a grace of God, so God gets the glory. Nope, not even the grace of faith or any act thereof. They nail the door shut any act thereof as if it were imputed to him for his justification, but only as it is an instrument by which he receiveth and applieth Christ and his righteousness. Okay, so that's the confessional doctrine. Let me say a couple things from Scripture. Romans chapter 3, we read from this this morning, verse 19. I'm just going to read through some passages and make a few brief comments. Verse 19 of Romans chapter 3. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Paul is establishing their human unrighteousness by nature. We're unrighteous, we're guilty, so we can't be declared righteous because we're unrighteous. We can't be declared righteous in ourselves because all of our works are, as Isaiah says, filthy rags. We're unrighteous. Then he says, well, here's the solution. God provides a righteousness. Verse 21, but now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ 
to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So, everybody has sinned, but the law and the prophets, the Old Testament reveals that God provides a righteousness. The righteousness of God, not through the law, not through law-keeping, not trying to attain the standard of God's perfect standard or His glory, the glory of God. We've fallen short of that. But rather, verse 24, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Jesus purchased and earned that righteousness. Verse 22 says it's through faith in Him, and it's through faith in Him because He's the one who purchased it, earned it, merited it. He redeemed it. Redemption, that's what that word means. It means to buy it, pay it to the last penny. The redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness. In other words, that He didn't dumb down the standard of the glorious righteousness of God. Jesus paid it all. He obeyed the whole law. He sustained the whole punishment for our disobedience to the law. And so it demonstrates God's righteousness because in His forbearance, God passed over the sins that were previously committed. Abraham was justified, even though the, the payment had not been made. Now God shows that He had every right to justify Abraham because now in the fullness of time, Jesus has done it. Verse 26, to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness, that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where's boasting? It is excluded. So that's unrighteousness followed by the solution, which is the righteousness of God in Christ. Then you go to chapter 4 of Romans, and it tells us how we receive this righteousness. Verse 2, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God, right? You see Dikembe Mutombo wagging the finger. Uh Uh-uh, not in my house, okay? Not before God, I don't think so. Get that self-righteous good works off my lawn is what Paul is saying. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. The, the, the preposition therefore could be translated unto. And if we had time, we'd go into that. But it's his, uh, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him unto righteousness. Now listen how we receive it. What does it mean for Abraham to believe? Verse 4. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, that's the scandal of the biblical doctrine of justification. People don't want to hear that. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted unto righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Notice he's not imputing faith, he's imputing righteousness. It's believing unto the reception of that imputed righteousness. But it's this contrast. The one who works has violated the gospel. It's not grace, it's debt. But the one who doesn't work, the ungodly person who doesn't work, but rather believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted 
unto that imputation of righteousness. And then finally, we see how Christ accomplished that righteousness and purchased our redemption in Romans 5, verse 18. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men. That's Adam. That's Adam's sin being imputed to his people because of his headship in the covenant of works. So also by one man's obedience, that's Jesus, many will be made righteous, literally in Greek, constituted righteous, appointed to have the status of righteous. It's not saying made righteous, in other words, sanctified in in some kind of infusion of righteousness into our nature. He does that through regeneration and sanctification. But here, it's this accounting of righteousness, this being constituted as righteous, and it functions the same way that Adam's sin functions. Adam disobeyed, we're all guilty in his covenantal headship, his actions on our behalf. Christ obeyed unto death on the cross, his active and passive obedience, in other words, and therefore we receive righteousness unto eternal life. So that's the gospel. That's the confessional and biblical doctrine of justification and justification by faith alone. Now we proceed to Norman Shepherd, and I quote, Justification by faith alone, as a way of summarizing the biblical doctrine of justification, runs into difficulty, however, when we come to the letter of James in the New Testament. James summarizes the gospel by saying that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. James 2.24. Shepherd goes on, in a letter to the editor in the September 2007 issue of Christianity Today, the writer, and that's not Shepherd, it's somebody else, the writer confesses that he has come to question the Reformation doctrine of justification by faith alone. He says, quote, the case for justification by faith alone only seems to work if certain scripture passages are excluded. For example, I've never heard preachers talk about this topic and voluntarily bring in James 2, 14 through 26. They seem to consciously avoid James's teaching. This writer, says Shepherd, has a point. So there's a red flag in his book, The Way of Righteousness. Shepherd says, this guy has a point. This guy who basically repeats Roman Catholic propaganda, this guy has a point. Now, James chapter 2 addresses a very specific situation that's evident to anybody who looks and just at face value, it's very simple what this passage is saying. James says, what does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? Or can such faith save him? So you have somebody who makes a profession of faith, makes a claim. I'm a believer in Christ. I have true saving faith. But he's living an ungodly lifestyle. Is that the kind of faith that saves? Is that saving faith? That's a situation. We're dealing with a person who makes a claim to other individuals, other human beings, and those people are having to answer the question of what do we make of the guy who says he has faith but his life doesn't match up? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food and one of you says to him, depart in peace and be warm and filled, 
but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? In other words, it's all talk. What do we do with someone whose Christianity is all talk? They, they talk about faith. Do they have true faith? Is their faith saving? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So he's saying there's such a thing as a dead faith if there are no works that come as the evidence that it's alive. There are no vital signs. But someone will say, notice it's, it's just individuals talking back and forth, right? This is not the judgment seat of the courtroom of heaven. This is not the final judgment at the last day. This is two people having a conversation. Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. So it's demonstrative. The works demonstrate that my claim to this other guy I'm talking to is genuine, that my words are valid and true. They, in other words, they vindicate my claim. Now, the word vindicate is a valid translation of the word justify. In fact, uh, in Romans 3, verse 4, we're told that when Jesus, uh, or rather when, when God judges unbelieving covenant members who reject the gospel, or when he even chastened David in Psalm 51, Paul says, Romans 3, verse 4, Let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that you, meaning God, might be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. In other words, God makes a claim. He reveals His covenant. And we're not going to get into the details, but in, in general, He reveals the words of His covenant, the promises and the threatenings, And when God is cross-examined on that, it'll be shown that His words were not empty, that the words and claims that He made were valid because it's demonstrated by, the, in this case, the judgment that He brings forth. So the word justify in Romans 3-4 is used in a way that really fits the context of James. Let's see if James uses that word. Verse 20. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by works faith was made perfect? In other words, he's addressing the issue of fruitless professing Christians and how to deal with them and how how to know how to address this problem. And he's saying, look, Abraham believed God, Genesis 15, 6, He was justified in terms of his right standing with God. But look at all the sins he committed with with Hagar and and lying and and doing, you know, all of his his unbelief and disobedience that you see throughout the subsequent chapters. How do we know Abraham was a true Christian? We, We ask this question all the time about Bible characters. We ask it about Solomon sometimes. How do we know that his claim to be a believer is genuine? How do we know he persevered and showed fruit? And for Abraham, we know because in Genesis 22, he was willing to offer up his son Isaac on the altar, and God declared, now I know that you fear God. Now, God already knew that, but he used this to demonstrate to everybody else and throughout history that true faith produces works, and Abraham is thereby vindicated, and Genesis 15, 6 is vindicated and demonstrated to be genuine because we see his works on a visible, horizontal level that 
everyone can look at and examine as evidence of true faith. So James picks the perfect word to use here. That's what justify means in a context like this, just like in Romans 3, 4. Paul wasn't afraid to use it in that context. And uh, sometimes I think we just, we just need to pay attention to the context. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. So that statement that Abraham had faith, that Abraham was a justified believer, that Abraham was a friend of God, that statement is fulfilled. It's vindicated. It's shown to be real because he brought forth good works. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Likewise was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works. In other words, her claim to be a believer was borne out in her choices, her decisions. Right off the bat, she's doing good works. She received the messengers and sent them out the other way. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. So yeah, true faith is going to be subsequently vindicated by somebody's life decisions and choices and good works. That's, that's right from Paul. That's right from James. That's a no-brainer. Uh, there's nothing in there that's in any way even beginning to address the issue of the courtroom of heaven wherein the believer is made right with God through the righteousness of Christ. It's just a silly Roman Catholic attempt to, to undermine the gospel. And Norman Shepherd says, this writer has a point. He goes on, sometimes we represent the difference between justification by faith and justification by works as the difference between justification by believing, faith alone, faith without works, and justification by doing, works alone, faith without works, or even works in addition to faith. Shepard says this is not what Paul has in view when he contrasts justification by faith with justification by works. Really. Romans 4.4, he contrasts the one who works and the one who does not work but believes. And yet Shepherd is totally contradicting that. He's saying, oh, when Paul says faith without works, he's not contrasting the one who works with the one who doesn't. Again, Shepherd, is there any hope? Here's the agenda. Is there any hope for a common understanding between Roman Catholicism and evangelical Protestantism regarding the way of salvation? He says, may I suggest that there is at least a glimmer of hope if both sides are willing to embrace a covenantal understanding of the way of salvation. In other words, his attempt to teach these things is an agenda for Protestants to return to Rome. And you say, no, it's for Protestants to unite with Rome. And Rome, you know, but here's the thing. If justification by faith alone is problematic, then there was no reason to leave the Roman Catholic Church and we should all go back and work for reform. And while Norman Shepard and the Federal Vision guys may not come out and say that explicitly, many of us know people who followed their teachings and went back to Rome. You can watch their conversion stories through the ministry of the Coming Home Network, which is largely fueled by former evangelical, Protestant, even Presbyterian ministers, some of whom were trained by Norman Shepherd at Westminster, who returned to Rome on account of these very doctrines. Because if we can bring the two together, then really 
the onus is on Protestants to acknowledge we never should have left. We should go back and work for change, and that's what these people do. In 2003, around the time the Federal Vision was just getting, just beginning to, to get cooking, the Coming Home Network said that they had 839 Protestant ministers on their registry, and 483 had already converted to full communion with the Roman Catholic Church. And that's almost 20 years ago. The, the number, no doubt, is astronomical by this point. So this is a big issue. It's the issue on which, in some sense, the church stands or falls. Let's look at the first point from Norman Shepherd. We'll go as far as we can, and then we'll pick up later next time. First main point from Shepherd's writings in the Doctrine of Justification. First, justification, or sorry, justifying faith includes faithful obedience as part of its essential definition. Justifying faith includes faithful obedience as part of its essential definition. Listen to Shepard. Repentance and obedience flow from faith as the fullness of faith. This is faithfulness, and faithfulness is perseverance in faith. Again, Shepard. James 2.21 says that Abraham was considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar. Literally, the verse says that Abraham was justified by works. He goes on, his faith was not merely demonstrated by what he did, but was completed by what he did. Without the deed, the faith would not be genuine. His faith is the obedience of faith. See, just like the Roman Catholics, he takes the context of James and tries to infuse it into the foreign context of the doctrine of justification by faith alone, thereby undermining it. But faith is the obedience of faith. Again, Shepherd, the obedience required of Israel is not the obedience of merit, but the obedience of faith. It is the fullness of faith. Obedience is simply faithfulness to the Lord. It is the righteousness of faith. And he cites Romans 9.32. My friends, Romans 9.32 is talking about the righteousness of faith that we receive through faith in the finished work of Christ. He redefines the righteousness of faith as our obedience, our faithfulness to the Lord, our, our fidelity. So much for the one who does not work but believes. For, for Shepherd, believing is working. Second main point from Shepherd. The role of faith in justification is to fulfill the necessary condition of faithful obedience. So there's a condition for justification. It's not just the condition that we receive Christ as a free gift of the Holy Spirit. We receive Christ as an instrument. But he's saying there is a necessary condition that involves faithful obedience. And faith fulfills that condition. Faith which he's redefined as faithfulness. Listen to Shepherd. Salvation is both by grace and through faith. These are the two parts of the covenant. Grace and faith. Promise and obligation. You see how he's redefined faith? If you, if you put these things together in parallel columns. For Shepherd, grace is connected with the promise. And faith is is connected with the obligation. In other words, fidelity, faithfulness. 
for Shepherd, faith is the counterpart to grace. It's us doing and meeting the condition. Unbelievable. Another quote from Shepherd: Eternal life is promised as an undeserved gift from the Lord. He forgives our sins and receives us as righteous because of Jesus Christ and His redemptive accomplishment on our behalf. Sounds pretty good. At the same time, faith, repentance, obedience, and perseverance are indispensable to the enjoyment of these blessings. They are conditions, but they are not meritorious conditions. Okay, let me get this straight. A condition of our justification is our perseverance. What? (laughs) That doesn't make any sense, does it? Unless we're not justified till the last day. I mean, how can your perseverance, which comes later, be a condition of God forgiving your sins at your conversion? And how are you going to persevere anyway if you don't have the guaranteed promise that your sins are forgiven unless you persevere? Therefore, beloved, since we have these promises, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of spirit and flesh and bring holiness to completion in the fear of God. The shepherd has it backwards. It's, it's, it doesn't even, really, you, you wonder, who's his editor here? I don't know. Perseverance in obedience is a condition for justification. So much for Romans 5 verse 1, which tells us, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And flowing out of that, verse 3, perseverance. Perseverance is the byproduct of justification and of sanctification as well. Having been justified, Romans 8 verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And yes, those who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. We already saw that from James, the fruit. Jesus says in the parable, Luke 18, 14, that the tax collector went down to his house justified not contingent on his future perseverance. Another quote from Shepard. The point in all of this is that Jesus makes justification contingent upon obedience. The Lord God justifies the righteous and condemns the wicked. He goes on, Jesus justifies the sinner who confesses his sins and repents of it. The good news of the gospel is not that Jesus forgives sinners who persevere in their ungodliness, but that he forgives sinners who repent. Another quote. It has become apparent by now that in the proclamation of the gospel, our Lord makes justification and salvation contingent upon obedience. Another one. Jesus, Paul, and James all make justification and sanctification, sorry, justification and salvation contingent upon a penitent and obedient faith. Here's another one from Shepherd, Quote, Genesis 15, 6 says that Abraham's faith was so significant that it was credited to him as righteousness, exclamation point. If so, then righteousness was a condition to be met and faith met that condition. And finally, Shepherd writes, but of course the work of offering Isaac as a sacrifice did not happen until much later in the experience of Abraham. In light of Genesis 15.6, it would be wrong to conclude that Abraham's faith was not credited to him until after it had been completed by the offering of Isaac. 
The point is that the faith Abraham had when he believed the promise was the kind of faith that would issue in obedience. Well, if that's true, and a rare moment of clarity for Dr. Shepard, if that's true, then James and Paul are talking about two entirely different things. Because Paul's talking about Genesis 15, 6, when Abraham believed God and was justified. And James is speaking of Genesis 22, when Abraham's true faith and friendship with God was vindicated and shown to be, you know, I know now that you fear God. Everybody knows it's brought forth in the evidence of your works. So if that's the case, it, it really, from Shepherd's own mouth, it, it destroys the whole point that he's trying to make. But in any event, he says that faith meets the condition of righteousness for justification. Thirdly, the justifying righteousness imputed to the sinner includes his own personal obedient faith. This is my summary. This is not, that's not a quotation. But this is what Shepard's saying. The justifying righteousness imputed to the sinner includes his own personal obedient faith. Now, we just saw that. I'm not going to reread that quote, but we saw that Shepard said in Genesis 15, 6, that Abraham's faith was just so significant that the faith was credited to him as righteousness and that met the condition. He says elsewhere, the faith credited to Abraham as righteousness was a living and active faith. So what is imputed to Abraham? His own faith. Shepherd, what is credited or imputed to Abraham? The answer is his faith. The faith that he had was reckoned to his account as righteousness. Faith and the obedience flowing from faith are of a piece with one another and together they constitute the righteousness of Abraham. His faith and his obedience is Abraham's righteousness. Now again, we're not talking about sanctification. We're not talking about the righteous deeds of the saints, the fine linen. We're not talking about the legitimate aspect of our marriage garment, wedding garment, that involves the adornment of the beauty of holiness. We're not denying that. But he's dealing here with, sorry, not with sanctification, but with justification and the imputation of righteousness. And he says, Abraham's imputed righteousness for justification is his own faith and his own obedience. Abraham was a righteous man. He trusted the Lord and obeyed Him, Shepherd says. The fact, this fact is recognized, acknowledged, and declared in the judgment of God. This is the man who is justified and saved He goes on, James makes the application to his own generation and to every generation of believers by saying in verse 24 that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. Shepard writes, the righteous who live by faith look to Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins and they walk with the Lord day by day in repentance and obedience. This is the kind of faith that is imputed to Abraham for righteousness. This is the faith by which we are justified today according to Romans 3.28. End quote. Uh, Just going to go on for a little bit more. Fourthly, according to Shepard, just as our Lord's own obedient faith was imputed to Jesus for righteousness, so the sinner's own obedient faith is imputed to the sinner for righteousness. Jesus becomes a pattern for us obtaining the righteousness 
that's imputed. Jesus didn't earn the righteousness for us and then it's imputed to us. He received the righteousness and he sets a pattern for us to go, go ahead and do likewise. Listen to this from Shepherd. quote, All of this is made possible through the covenantal righteousness of Jesus Christ. His was a living, active, and obedient faith that took him all the way to the cross. This faith was credited to him as righteousness. He goes on, but just as Jesus was faithful in order to guarantee the blessing, so his followers must be faithful in order to inherit the blessing. End quote. Another quote. Abraham had to keep covenant with the Lord, as did his descendants, to whom the promises also were made. The preeminent covenant keeper is Jesus Christ. He is the seed of Abraham, obedient to death, even death on a cross. As the covenant is kept, according to the pattern of Jesus Christ, the promises of the covenant are fulfilled. So Christ is not just our pattern for sanctification. We would agree to that. But he's apparently our pattern for justification. Not it is finished and we rest in his finished work, but we follow him in an obedient faith that is then imputed to us for righteousness in the same way that his obedient faith was imputed to him for righteousness. Number five, the real problem with the Jewish Pharisees, according to Shepherd, who sought to be justified by works, what's the problem with the people Paul's writing against? these self-righteous Jewish Pharisees. Their real problem, according to Shepherd, is that in contrast to obedient believers, their faith was not obedient enough. In other words, they were too disobedient and sinful to meet God's requirement for justification. Their problem was that not that they were trying to obey the law with obedient faith to be justified. Their problem was that they weren't obedient enough. It's unbelievable. Listen to this from Shepherd. Quote, This living, active, and obedient faith is clearly differentiated from works of the law. In the language of Romans 2, those who are seeking to be justified and saved by the works of the law do not keep the law. They only hear the law, but do not do what it says. In contrast to that, Paul describes true believers as those who repent of sin and seek to do what is good according to God's law. Those who believe in Jesus with this kind of faith will be justified. The believer who believes in Jesus Christ with a living, active, penitent, and obedient faith is the righteous man who lives by faith, Romans 1.17, end quote. So if you're, if you're not a total hypocrite and you're living an overall godly life, not like the Jews in Romans 2, then you're Okay. The people that Paul's confronting for trying to earn their salvation or trying to do the works that are necessary for salvation, the reason he's confronting them is not because they think they can do the works to meet the condition, but because they're just not doing enough works. Forget Isaiah, who was one of the godliest men alive at the time when he wrote it in Isaiah 6, where he says, woe is me, for I am an un- have unclean lips. Woe is me, I'm undone. Uh, Shepherd according to this, would say, well, no, that's not true, Isaiah. You're a godly man. It's just those hypocrites that aren't doing enough works that we need to confront about works righteousness. So much for Romans 3. All right, I'm going I'm to finish this. Uh, not the whole thing, but the next point. According to Shepherd, and this is just crucial. We have to do this before we stop. 
The sinner's justification occurs definitively at the final judgment, according to Shepard, following an evaluation of his personal works as a necessary condition, not at the moment of conversion when he exercises justifying faith in the righteousness of Christ. Let me say that again. The sinner's justification occurs definitively at the final judgment, following an evaluation of his personal works as a necessary condition, not at the moment of conversion when he exercises justifying faith in the righteousness of Christ. Now, you can read his book, The Way of Righteousness, for yourself. He nuances this to death. So he acknowledges, well, there's a certain sense in which you're justified at your conversion, and there's another sense, and there's another sense. But when, he, when the dust finally settles, it's the preeminent definitive justification at the last day. That's the one that counts. Quote, to summarize, the justification in view in James 2.24 is soteric, that is, saving justification. It contemplates a day of judgment to come when all people will appear before the Lord Jesus Christ to be judged. Will they escape from a judgment that is unto condemnation and death? James says in verse 24, that they will be justified and saved by what they do and not by faith alone. End quote. Let me qualify this a bit. We're not denying that Matthew 25 describes a vindication of the true salvation of the sheep over against the goats by bringing forth their good works, their merciful works, as evidence, as a testimony to the reality of their salvation. We know that that kind of judgment will take place, and even the works of believers, some of them will be burned up, and there will be rewards and so forth. However, Shepherd is trying to import, as a, as a sort of good Roman Catholic apologist would, Matthew 25 into James chapter 2. But again, we read James chapter 2. Does James chapter 2 say anything about the final judgment? Now, they're going to they're gonna look under every nook and cranny in the epistle of James to try to find vague references and allusions. But in verses 14 through 26, it's not talking about the final judgment. It's talking about two people having a conversation about whether their faith is genuine. It's about people looking at other people and looking at the visible fruit of their salvation to see if their claim to being a Christian is valid and if their words are vindicated. That's the context. And the examples that Paul or James, could have been Paul, they're saying the same thing, but what James uses here are examples that didn't happen at the final judgment. Abraham was, even in James's words, justified or vindicated during his lifetime. Uh, Same with Rahab. There's not even a hint of the final judgment anywhere in James 2, 14 through 26. Again, it's just an old Roman Catholic trick to try to import Matthew 25 into justification. Matthew 25 has nothing to do with justification. Matthew 25 is just showcasing the good works of believers to vindicate God and His grace at the last day. It has nothing to do with justification. And uh, James 2, 14 through 26 is clear on that. Shepherd, quote, The thought is not simply that righteous people show themselves to be truly righteous people by the help they give to those in need. Jesus is saying in Matthew 25 that only the righteous, those whose faith is wrought out in deeds, enter into eternal life. Now, in a way, we wouldn't disagree with that, but 
It has nothing to do with justification. These last two quotes, and then we're C and D in the outline, and then we're done. Quote, Shepherd, when are we justified? Theologians have offered a variety of answers to this question. Some say we are justified in the eternal decree of God and that this decree is simply worked out in the course of history. Others, those are the hyper-Calvinists, don't listen to them. Others say that we were justified when Jesus died on the cross and rose again from the dead on the third day. Well, that's when Jesus purchased our justification, but it's not actually our justification. That is when our sins were atoned for, and so we were justified when Jesus was justified as our sin bearer in his death and resurrection. Still others, the people that Shepherd has uh, taken ordination vows to agree with confessionally, but he just says others, say that we are justified. Well, the first half is actually Roman Catholics. Some say, still others say that we are justified at the moment when we are baptized. That's Catholics or at the moment when we come to personal faith in Jesus. Those are the people that Shepherd has taken vows to agree with confessionally. That's the Reformed view. But he says it's just still others. You know, there's just these people out there who knows who they are. And some people say it's baptism. Some people say it's when we believe. He goes on. Then the justification that is prepared for us is made ours. And we are actually and personally justified. And then there are those who say that we are justified really only in the final judgment. There is a measure of truth in all of these views, but the key to understanding the biblical doctrine lies in the last view mentioned. What's that view? That we're justified really only in the final judgment. We will be justified on the day when we appear before the judgment seat of Christ and when each one will receive what is due him for the things done in the body, whether good or bad, 2 Corinthians 5.10. Justification is a forensic, that is a legal judicial act, that is an act of judgment. The final judgment is by preeminence the time when God acts forensically in judgment, the time when God renders a verdict that will never be appealed or reversed. So I guess your justification when you believe, maybe that can be reversed. You see, it's now all hanging in the balance for this irreversible justification at the last day. So much for we have been justified, Romans 5.1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation, Romans 8.1. So much for the order of salvation, Romans 8.30, that those whom God foreknew, He predestined, He called, He justified, and then later He glorified. So much for the tax collector who thought he went down to his house justified, but uh, that could have been reversed later, perhaps. So much for Abraham, even in the book of James. Whatever justification James is talking about, it didn't happen at the last day. It's, It's unbelievable that he would write this and that people would give it a second thought. Last quote, and then we're done. A common understanding... This is Shepherd. A common understanding is that at the moment the sinner believes, God declares his justification in the courtroom of heaven. That is, God declares our justification in secret. Well, no, we wouldn't say that. Since when was the courtroom of heaven secret? There's an innumerable company of angels, the church of the firstborn, people that, that are in the presence of the angels of God and rejoicing when one sinner repents. 
That's not secret, my friends. See, he's mischaracterizing our view, but he says this is in secret. He says, this is when we are really justified at the moment when we are converted. On the day of judgment, God will simply announce openly and before a gathered humanity that once for all secret declaration. The judgment of the last day is therefore nothing more than a public announcement of a judgment that has taken place at another time and in another place and in total secrecy. He goes on, the point to be made here is that the Bible knows nothing about a secret assize or evaluation like the one just described. There is no secret courtroom where the sinner is not present to be judged, where he does not see the judge, and where neither he nor anyone else can hear this momentous ultimate judgment being pronounced. The Bible knows nothing of a secret judgment. The secret judgment is a theological invention, end quote. Now, this is heresy, and use your shift key. Use the caps lock, capital H, capital E. Okay, this is damnable heresy. This not only undermines the gospel, it makes a mockery of the gospel. It makes it no gospel at all. You have to wait till the final judgment to get the irreversible declaration. My friends, when I was justified, when you were justified, I was in the courtroom and I saw the judge and I heard his spirit testifying with my spirit that I'm a child of God. And that's my experience throughout the Christian life. It's not secret. We're not separate from the presence of the judge. That's what faith is all about. When you believe and receive Christ's righteousness, he gives you the eyes and ears to hear that testimony in your soul, in your conscience, as you read the word. This is utter heresy. And if you believe it, you will go to hell. And if you teach it, it will be hotter than ever unless you repent. The idea that there is no personal justification for the believer in this life and it's all pending a final judgment to come, I think the verses we've looked at have already refuted that but let me just close with this verse, Romans 4, verse 3. For what does the Scripture say? Not Norman Shepherd. Okay? These are the teachings. Are these the teachings of a shepherd, of a hireling, of a wolf? I'm not sure. But what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him unto righteousness. Case closed. He was justified. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that you would show forth your mercy and your grace upon your church and the courts of your church that they would not dilly-dally, that they would not sit back on the easy chair but be watchmen on the walls to warn your people of these dangerous, soul-destroying doctrines of hell. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would give discernment to the preachers and teachers, the elders, the fathers and mothers, all who teach and instruct throughout your church, that they would be proclaiming the truth of Christ and not the lies of Antichrist, and that you would remove this scourge from the church in our land, and that we would remove, that we would cast out the bondwoman and her children and that we would believe 
your gospel and proclaim it with great fruitfulness. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.